Young, back to throw. In trouble, he's going to be sacked. No, gets away. He runs, gets away again, goes to the 40, gets away again, to the 35, cuts back at the 30, to the 20, the 50, the 10. He dies, touchdown, 49ers. What's up, 49ers faithful? It is Zane Nackvi with Al Sacco, back with another episode of the 49ers Web Zone Huddle Podcast, sponsored by theqbsync.com. And over the last two years now, the QB Sneaks weekly predictions have been over 60% correct for accurate predictions on the NFL and thought-provoking NFL content that can help your fantasy teams, confidence pools, or any help that you need arguing with your friends over who's the GOAT, head to www.thequbsneak.com. And Al, man, it's another heartbreaking loss. And they just find new ways to, to give it up in the end. And there's so much that happened last night, and there's so many things that we can talk about. And this is one of those shows where you and I want to let this happen organically. Like we talked off air before this and we're like, you know what? I'll, I don't want to hear what you think until we actually talk about it because there's just so much crazy th- stuff that happened last night and so many ways that we could take it. And I just want to get your thoughts, man. Like, what are your thoughts on what happened? We're not even doing a guest this week. There's so much to talk about. Zane and I were like, you know what? Let's just go, the, go on the show and just hit it all because <laughs> how, how many times can we see the same movie? It's just so frustrating. Week after week after week, this team just finds a way to lose these games. But at least with in week 10, there were a number of positives go along with the negatives that we saw. And there's so much, like Zane said, for us to get into. And what were the positives? Well, Nick Mullins played a gutsy game, a flawed game, as you'd expect from any 23-year-old undrafted QB in his second start, but it was good enough to win. Brita and Kittle look like stars. The O line played well again, and Richard Sherman was the best player on defense. Not only, not only covering, but he tackled so well and was great in the run game. And Fred Warner looks like a long term starter. So some some good things, some good takeaways from this game as the season is is spiraling away. But the negatives, well, the wide receiver group was awful to me last night, or in week ten, I should say, and really hurt the team. And the defensive breakdowns are inexcusable, and they just keep happening. There was no pass rush against a bad Giants offensive line. And yet another game where the team couldn't close. And while the team needs closers on the field, they also need closers on the coaching staff. And Robert Salah is not that guy. And also, what the hell was that timeout that they called on defense when the Giants were driving towards the end of the game? We'll talk about that, why in God's name, Janahan just hit the conference call, but they completely wasted a timeout that they needed there. So Zane, lot to get into, but let's start on a positive. Let's do some positives as we start out the show here, and let's look at the offense. And to start, wasn't perfect by any means, but you have to be happy overall with Nick Mullins, right? Yeah, both of those picks weren't his fault. Maybe the first one, he was a little bit slow on the read, but at the same time, like the ball got tipped literally right into the Giants defender's hands, and it happened the second time too. You look at the reads that he's making on the field, and there's the one throw on the wheel route to Brita where he had the linebacker one-on-one, and Brita had him beat by about a yard or so, and Nick Mullins just overthrew him. That's the right read on that play. And if he completes that pass, that's either a really long gain or a touchdown. And I like to see the fact that Nick Mullins is actually making the right reads and he's completing these passes and he's not necessarily throwing it into tight coverage. Like I, I really haven't seen him force it very much as of yet. And I think those are all encouraging signs because it shows that he's mature beyond just the fact that he's making a second start. And again, like it wasn't perfect, like you said, but I really think that he played well enough for them to win. He put them in position to go down there and 
get to go ahead score with under three minutes left and you rely on your defense to hold it. Like what else do you want out of your third string quarterback? He's playing as well as you could ever want your third string quarterback to play. And I know you mentioned coaching uh, and, and we'll get to that in, in a second, but the job that Kyle Shanahan has done for Nick Mullins to simplify this offense and give him easy reads and give him the, the ability to be able to move out of the pocket and throw on the run and give him multiple options at different layers it's unbelievable. What he's done has has been remarkable, and he hasn't had a number one quarterback for more than seven games in a stretch, right? Because Jimmy got hurt in in the eighth game that he had him in, and really, it just goes to show that Kyle Shanahan is is a brilliant offensive mind, and he's a brilliant play caller, and he's learning. He got a lot better, and I really want to touch on the end of the half and end of the game uh, drive sequences, and what when we get to that in a bit, but. The, the job that he's done with Nick Mullins and making him into a serviceable starter that can basically, in my opinion, hold the fort until Jimmy gets back next year is just, just remarkable. Mullins played good enough to win. He did. Bottom line. Obviously he makes the big mistake early with the bad interception in the shadow of his own goal line. And I, I thought, I thought that was too risky of a throw in my opinion, because he doesn't really have the arm strength to get it out there. And I thought he mm-hmm. was kind of asking for trouble with that throw, but look again, 23 year old second star undrafted quarterback what what you know those things are going to happen what i wanted to see was after it happened how was he going to respond was he going to come out and everything was going to go to hell or was he going to come out and and get things going again and they responded with the touchdown drive the next time the offense got the ball so that was really encouraging and he looked like he just brushed it off and that's what you want to see with the young quarterback just have amnesia now the second INT to me looks like he kind of got cr- crossed up with Goodwin. It looked like Goodwin almost maybe stopped on his route. There was just some kind of miscommunication there. And Goodwin, who frankly, the team needs more from him right now. And that was a rough interception off his hands. It was behind him, but he probably should have caught the ball. But it bounces up and it lands up in the arms of a giant, and and that hurt the 49ers for sure because maybe maybe they could come up with points in that drive, but. Mullins was good on third down. The team was eight and 13 overall. And you look at Mullins numbers, 27 for 39, 250 yards, the 6.4 yards for attempt needs to be got, needs to be better. But again, we're dealing with an inexperienced QB here. That's said, it's going to happen. He had a great rapport with George Kittle again for the second game in a row. But what really hurt this team, Zane, I thought was, I, I thought the receivers were atrocious last night. Goodwin played decent other than that drop. I mean, he made a few catches, I guess, but Kendrick Bourne to me is just another dude. He's, he's, he's not really ever going to make a huge impact. And Dante Pettis does a lot of things early in his career that it's kind of worrying me right now. And look, this guy's played what seven games because of injuries and it takes receivers time. It takes some receivers two years, but he just does things that he looks like he doesn't know where to be. He runs the wrong route. It's just not a really good start for him. And they they tried to get him involved last night, which I love. Or again, I'm week 10. <laughs> Can you tell we're recording this on a Tuesday? I keep saying last night. <laughs> um, they they tried to get him involved, which was great, but they're just not getting anything out of it yet. And that that worries me a little bit. What what did you think about the receivers group? Am I making too much out of this? Or or did you think they struggled too? I'm really surprised that Richie James didn't play more. And you yeah, actually right? Were- I was surprised by that too. Mm-hmm. And you actually tweeted that out. It was like, I was thinking that exact same thing. I was surprised that they didn't utilize him more because he worked so well with Nick Mullins last week. And this week, it just they just didn't, I don't know if they didn't feel like they had the right personnel groupings versus 
the giant secondary. I don't know if they felt like they, they wanted to get Pettis more involved instead of letting Richie James get more involved. But honestly, Alec, I think that a lot of this is also like, Hey, we drafted Dante Pettis in the second round, traded up to get him. Now we need to get him on the field and make that pick look good. As opposed to like, all right, who really deserves to be on the field right now? And I think uh, Richie James, is the, he's already outplayed Dante Pettis. He really has, both in the return game and as a receiver. And I really think that literally this is just draft status show, rearing its head right now. Dante Pettis was a second round pick. Richie James was a seventh round pick. So by virtue of that, the second round pick is going to get more reps. And it's not fair because we want the best guy on the field. But I think that right now it's so early in their careers that they're really wanting to give Pettis an actual shot before, before anybody else. And I agree with that because you picked him high for a reason and you need to see what he has. But at the same time, like, like you said, there's too many times where he just isn't aware. He doesn't know the situation. There was, I believe it was at the end of the half that they ran a, it was like a, a quick screen, a bubble screen to him. And instead of, going out of bounds and stopping the clock, he tried to turn it up field and he kept the clock going and they, they only gained like a yard or something like that. And, and they basically had to waste a timeout because of that. And it's not a great play call to be honest, because the, the, the risk and reward is not worth it. Like you're, you're basically risking a bunch of time on the clock to gain like one or two yards, but that's not neither here nor there. The fact is that Pettis should have gone out of bounds and he stayed in bounds and they had to waste a timeout. So things like that, that, a rookie will do because he's just a rookie. Let's face it. Like he's not a 10 year veteran or anybody that's, that's been around a long time and he's going to learn those things and they're going to take their lumps and receivers take longer to develop as it is. And especially in this offense and a Kyle Shanahan offense where you have so much movement and you have so many guys that are going around and, and moving on at the same time on the same play. Like there are opportunities for guys to make mistakes and Donde Pettis is not, an exception to that. So I really think that we should give him more time. I'm I've always been high on Dante Pettis. I think that when Jimmy was in there, he flashed it a little bit. Really. It just comes down to the comfort level of the quarterback and Mullins really seems to be comfortable with George Kittle. You mentioned that Kittle had a strong game and he did. He's targeted 10 times. And he caught nine of them, which is phenomenal. He almost had a hundred yards receiving and he was the guy that was kind of moving the chain. So that to me is, is indicative of how poor this wide receiver group has performed and they put up a graphic i don't know if you saw it al but they put up a graphic with kittle Ertz, and travis kelsey and george kittle has the highest percentage of targets and yards uh, out of any of the top tight ends in the league like it's 31 percent. and i think kelsey was like 27 and uh, and uh um oh sorry Ertz was like 27 kelsey was like 25 percent. so it tells you how much they don't trust the receivers and marquise goodwin had a had a really rough night and I really like Marquise Goodwin because he's a good guy and he doesn't, he doesn't get in trouble off the field. He's a good teammate and, and he's been through a lot personally and he's overcome that. And he just, he just, his head just didn't seem in the game. Like at the end of the game, the, the second to last play out, he caught the ball in the middle of the field and he starts running towards the sideline. I don't know anyway, what he was thinking. I, I, it just shows a lack of awareness. And dude, you're, you're a, a 29, 30 year old vet. Like you should know that just sit down. Give the, run the ball, run the ball to the ref, clock, clock it, and you maybe you get two shots. Literally, it's just like he he started running toward horizontally towards the sideline, and I'm like thinking, like, what are you doing, wasting three or four seconds off that clock? And you just you just don't expect that out of a veteran guy. So I just think that they're kind of in their own head right now too, and I think that they feel the pressure and they know that they have to perform. 
But my long-winded answer is that yeah, they have been disappointing. Like I thought that I thought that they would they would be better than they were. And Pierre Garcon obviously was out la- uh, last well last week, and um, he didn't get a chance to to really build anything with Mullins either. So it's just really like up in the air. And they have to improve that group this offseason. They have to get a number one receiver that they can count on, whether it's for the draft or free agency. What you you mentioned playing Pattis instead of James? Can't they both be on the field? Can sure. we get creative here? Can't yeah, we? Why not? And that was that was sort of my thing. Is is James played um, twenty three snaps in week nine, and he caught two passes for sixty yards. He had the big fifty three yarder, and he dropped a touchdown pass. If he hauls that in, three catches, it would have been over seventy yards in, in the touchdown. And this week he plays five snaps. Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand it. He had a good rapport with Mullins. He made a big play. Sure, he has a drop, but again, he's a seventh round rookie. Those things are going to happen. You have to play through them. You don't put him on the field for more than five snaps. I, I didn't understand it at all, especially in the first half when your receivers are pretty much invisible. I tweeted out, and it's true. I watch these 49ers games. I forget there's receivers on the field sometimes. Mm-hmm. They're throwing to Kittle. They're throwing to use check. They're throwing to Brita. Receivers are, are absolutely invisible. And I want to see him, Ricky James, and Dante Pettis on the field more than I want to see Kendrick Bourne at this point. Yeah. What is Kendrick I mean, I mean, Kendrick Bourne is just another guy. He's a fourth or fifth receiver. We, we know what he is at this point. I don't ever see him taking that huge next step at all. The Niners need people to that they can throw the football to, and he's been on the field, and he, he hasn't stepped up. So let's see what James and Pattis can do. And Goodwin, look, I love Marquise Goodwin, and I, I want him on the team next year and the year after, and I think he's a big piece. And he showed it on Green Bay when he's got it going, what he can do with 126 yards and two TDs. But right now, Goodwin has 17 catches in seven games. He's been banged up. He missed three games with injury, but in the seven games he played, he has 17 catches. That does not cut it. It doesn't cut it. They need him to be a number one receiver right now. And I don't expect him to be DeAndre Hopkins. I expect him to be Julio Jones hauling in 10, 15 balls. He's not that type of receiver, but I need the Niners need him to be more productive than what we've seen him. I think he's hurt. I really do. I think it's, you it's think that it's still, because he didn't look hurt I against think- Green Bay. You think yeah. it's just nagging him? I just, I just think it's nagging him. Like, like those, like soft tissue injury, the thigh, hamstring, those things. Like, they just nag at you all the entire season. Calf, Sherman's got the calf thing. But Al, like, I'm sorry to 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 interject here, but do you really think that it's time for them to pay for a number one receiver? And I'm not saying go throw money around because there's a fine line between throwing money around recklessly and using money on significant contributors. Because what they have is a bunch of receivers that aren't really starters. Honestly, like how many of these receivers are start on other team on other teams? Maybe just good one. And that's it. Maybe just good one. Yeah. They have yep. a bunch of spare parts that they're rolling out there every week. And their plan, frankly, Al was this year. It was before Jimmy got hurt. Their plan was like, Hey, we're just going to roll Jimmy out there and we'll get eight wins just by rolling Jimmy out there because he's going to mask all the other deficiencies. And really that plan got exposed. It's not, it's not a good enough plan. And I know that other teams do that in the league, but those are teams that are, that are either strapped for cash because they're up against the cap and trying to contend every year. Or they're teams that don't draft and develop well. And the 49ers are not either of that. They, they have cap room. They, they have drafted better since John Lynch came on. And I really think that it's time for them to really invest in the receiver position. Like, when's the last time they took a receiver in the first round? Obviously, pass rusher is the number one need right now and then, and then corner. But when's the last time they took a receiver in the first round? Or when's the last time they signed like a bona fide number one receiver? They really need to improve that position and make a really sincere effort to do that instead of like oh you know what this guy has potential he's never really started but he has some measurables that we like and he could be good in the system no go out and get a guy who started 16 games in the season for a team and produced he doesn't have to be julio jones but there are plenty of guys in this league 
that have started and produced at a high level that you can get out there. They need a guy who can wreck a game. Mm-hmm. They need a guy on offense who could wreck a game, and they need a guy on defense who could wreck a game. And what I mean, what I mean by that is someone who can go out and just destroy the opposition. Somebody like Khalil Mack. You watch Khalil Mack play. <clears throat> he wrecks the game. You change He's that team. All of, right, exactly. Exactly. Somebody, again, like a DeAndre Hopkins and Julio Jones and Antonio Brown, these receivers, they absolutely wreck the game because they're so dominant. And look, people, receivers these days are throwing up crazy numbers. They're throwing up stupid video game numbers all over the NFL. Not in San Francisco. There are no receivers mm-hmm. throwing up stupid numbers for the Niners. Mm-hmm. Goodwin had that one game where he had 126 yards, but other than that, it's just it's just not happening with with the Niners receivers, and they have to. I thought they should have done it with Allen Robinson. Mm-hmm. I thought he should have been the main target this offseason. And again, maybe he wanted to go back to, or he wanted to go to Chicago, and that was on him. Maybe the Niners tried. Who knows? But you look around the league. And guys are with already, we're in week 10, already have over 800 yards receiving. Robert Woods, Michael Evans, Brandon Cooks, Odell Beckham, Tyreek Hill, Hopkins, Thielen, Thomas, Julio Jones. These guys all have over 800 yards receiving right now. Who's the Niners leading wide receiver? Is it, is it Goodwin? I mean, I'd have to look it up. I don't even think, I don't even think they have a guy with over 300 yards yet, do they? Is, sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely crazy. I mean, obviously, um, Kittle's having a fantastic year with 775 yards, but in terms of the actual Niners receivers, nobody's really doing anything. And I'll look it up. I'll get you guys in a minute who the um, Niners leading receiver is. But Niners do. They have to absolutely go out this offseason, and, and whether it's in the draft or they sign someone or or whatever they do, I don't even really think there's a receiver out there. Who, I mean, you got to pay a lot of money for Golden Tate, right? Yeah. I don't even think there's a receiver out there who can really make a big difference. And Niners leading wide receiver right now is Marquise Goodwin with 339 yards. Garcon wow. is second with 286. Kendrick Bourne has 230. Trent Taylor, 150. Dante Pettis, 108. Richie James, 67. These wide receivers are not getting it done. They're just not. Now, someone you mentioned who is getting it done, and I, I do want to throw some more George Kittle. It seems like every week we're saying what George Kittle did, and he's on pace right now. He's got 775 yards in 10 games. He's on pace for 1,240 receiving yards this season. The only, only three 49er players have had more receiving yards than that. Jerry Rice, who did it numerous times, um, had more than that. He did it in 95, 86, 93, 90, 94, 89, I mean, 96, 88, just tons of years Rice did because Rice is amazing. T.O. had more than 1240, 2000, 2001, and 2002, and Dave Parks in 1965. Those are the only three guys who ever had more receiving yards than George Kittle's on pace to have. That's crazy as a tight end. That is a monster, monster season. What you're seeing at tight end at George Kittle right now is one of the best seasons in 49ers history history for what he's doing at the tight end position. It's crazy. Vernon Davis, I think it was 965 yards, had the most receiving yards for a tight end. Kittle's on pace to obliterate that. Obliterate that. Where I would like to see Kittle more involved, uh, or get the 49ers get him more involved, I should say. I'd like to see them almost force the ball more to him in the red zone. Mm-hmm. Make it a point for him to be a red zone threat. Now, maybe that's difficult to do because he's really their only weapon, but... I would like to see he's only got three touchdowns. I would like to, to make the Niners like the Patriots do Gronk. They feed him down there. You know, mm-hmm. I would like to see the Niners try to do that with Kittle. 
Yeah, just throw, just throw ball, kind of up for grab balls or jump balls, things like that to him, like the the Patriots do, or like a like a fade or a back shoulder or something like that 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 Brady and Gronk are so good at. I think it's not a huge deal that, or it's not a bad thing that the offense runs through a tight end because we've seen it work before, right? It just it's it, you just have to have capable players around that person, right? You have you can't just have like a bunch of late round picks and undrafted free agents and spare parts. You have to have actual NFL level starters right and the 49ers don't have that so what's going to happen now is that throughout the the latter half of the season and i fully expect this to happen is that you'll see teams doubling kittle and you'll see them trying to take him away because right now he's kind of the niners are two and eight and nobody really cares about them and they're 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 focused so much on all the other teams in the nfl and and all of a sudden they'll see george kittle's name start to rise up the ranks in terms of statistics and tight ends and i'm sure opposing teams already know about it but right now the 49ers are are so devoid of talent and difference makers everywhere else that they're like, you know what? We'll let George Kittle get his hundred yards and we'll let him get his six catches or eight catches or whatever he gets, but we'll just shut down everybody else because they don't have enough to, to beat us with besides that. And that's really not a great sort of indictment on the talent that you have on your roster is that they're literally willing to let your best offensive player go off for as many yards as he wants because they're so confident that you can't beat them any, any other way. And I think that it's, it's, again, we go to the off season. It's the onus is on John Lynch to add more pieces around him. And George Kittle is, is on pace for historical numbers, but next year you better believe that teams will be keying in on him. And I really think that this is, this has probably been the best development of 2018 for the 49ers, the emergence of George Kittle, because we didn't know that he had this in him. When he came out of Iowa last year, he was known for his, he was actually known as a run blocking tight end. Although he did have the speed and he did have the athletic ability he didn't, he didn't get thrown to too much in, in Iowa. And, and we thought that Cole Hickettini may be the better tight end. And as we know, Hickettini went to the practice squad and was eventually released. And, and now he's, uh, he's kind of bouncing around. And Kittle was the one that became the star. And he had the case of the dropsies last year and early this year, but he seems to, seems to have fixed that. And he's become a team captain in his second, in less than two years. And, when you see the energy that exudes, like they had him mic'd up for sound and like he was just screaming and yelling and getting fired up and the, the enthusiasm and joy that he plays with, that's the kind of guy that you want in your locker room. That's the kind of guy that you want to build around. So when people say that the 49ers don't really have a cornerstone pieces or they don't have cornerstone pieces, I think you're looking at one hell. Like George Kittle is one of those guys. If he can continue this pace and he can stay healthy, I really think that he's going to be one of those cornerstone pieces. Oh, absolutely. And I, like I said, he's on pace for over a thousand yards and another 49er offensive star <laughs> who's mm-hmm. on pace for a thousand yards rushing is Matt Breida. Mm-hmm. Just a sensational game in week 10, sensational two touchdowns. And, and really when he's on that 49ers offense can go, it's so impressive what he's done this season. He's on pace to, I think it's a thousand eleven yards right now. And Shanahan was asked in the press conference if, if, he could envision Breed and McKinnon together next year. And he kind of smiled and said, you know, he already has. Breed is going to be heavily involved next year. It'll probably be a, might even be a 50-50 split the way that Breed has played this year. Breed deserves, I mean, he's he's played like a running back one. He really has. And he's he's played through injury. He's he's played beat up. If both of those guys reach 1,000 yards this year, it'll, it'll be the first time uh, since 2014 when Gore and Bolden did it that, they'd have teammates with a thousand yards rushing and a thousand receiving. So it's definitely an, an impressive season. And Brita to me is just what a feel good story. He's one of my favorite players right now. And to see him do that is great. 
he's really fun to watch. And I, you can see him getting better and better every week. Like the touchdown catch that he had, first of all, great route concept where they got him on the linebacker and, and had the mismatch. And again, Mullins made the right read. We talked about that earlier, right? With him making the right read. He made the right read and found Breida in the end zone. And it was a really acrobatic catch. It wasn't a great throw. Breida had to get up, climb the ladder a little bit and get it. And he did. And every time he has the ball, he's kind of, he's kind of like that, that home run threat that they've been missing. And I think that because he's so young and inexperienced, like there's some, there's some times where he'll, he'll miss a hole or he he'll miss a cutback where he could have taken it even further or something just happens in front of him. And he's not able to escape it. I think that that will come with time and the vision that people talk about, like Frank Gore is known for his vision as a running back as, as is Le'Veon Bell, who's sitting out the entire season, which I want to talk to you about later, Al which is kind of a crazy story, but those guys have great elite vision and they may not be the best or fastest athletes, but their vision is what sets them apart. And I think that Matt Breida is still developing that. And if he can develop that vision, he can be a really good running back and he can be your franchise running back. I tweeted out Al that this, like they have to start Breida next year, if, especially if he gets to like a thousand yards and he, and he holds onto the ball and doesn't have fumbling problems. Like I find it really hard for the 49ers to say that, okay, well, you just had a thousand yards this season and you were our, one of our lone bright spots on offense and you were consistent and you were, you played banged up, but now you're going to sit the bench because McKinnon's going to play because we paid him more. I don't know if they, I don't know if that sends the right message to the locker room. I really, I don't think it's going to be even be a 50 50. I think this is going to be like Matt Breida is going to get the, the bulk of the carries and McKinnon will come in as a third round, third down back. I really do because Matt Breida has, like it's not fair to McKinnon because it, he was supposed to be the RB one and he, he got injured and all that stuff. But at the same time, it's not as if Matt Breida hasn't been producing like Matt Breida was not Breida was just kind of floundering and not doing that well. And basically if he was Alfred, what Alfred Morris is doing now, then we can say, okay, it's McKinnon's job. He's, he's just keeping the seat warm. McKinnon will come back and, and take that job. But Matt Breida's killing it. He's absolutely killing it out there. And he's been, Again, with Kittle, he's been the the nicest story this year, I think, for the 49ers is his development. And one of the nicest stories in the league, given his background, his background story. And again, like you, he's one of my favorite 49ers to watch, both because of the off-field stuff and the on-field stuff. And he just seems to get it. Undrafted rookie out of Georgia, Georgia Southern, nobody really paid attention to him. And man, like he's he's becoming an all-around back. They're using him to catch the ball. They're using him in short yardage situations. There was a third and one they needed to complete near the end of the game, and he got it. And he's just he's really just kind of coming into his own. And I find it really hard for them to to sit him next year and and put him behind McKinnon. I love on those outside runs when he's taken to the outside, and you're like, oh, he's only going to get one or two yards here, and then it looks like he just gets shot out of McKinnon and he's eight yards downfield. Isn't that amazing? Like, like week after week, he's just doing that. Like you're ready for. A, a one yard gain or, or getting stopped for no gain. And then boom, he's, he's eight, 10 yards upfield. It's, it's awesome to watch. And he's averaging 5.6 yards per carry on 113 attempts. Raheem Moster on 34 attempts was averaging 7.7 yards per carry. And that shows you how well the offensive line has been playing, playing as well. And they have, they've done a good job pass protection. They've done a good job run blocking. And <laughs> you look at those numbers. Then you look at Alfred Morris's numbers. 3.4 yards per carry on the season on 93 attempts. He had 19 yards on nine carries last night. And you just watched when Brita came out of the game, they gave the ball to Morris and nothing happened. And I've been watching that all season. Morris gets the ball and nothing happens. He just kind of runs into the center of the line. Mm-hmm. And we like, I just said that that old line has been terrific. It's been a huge surprise to me. I didn't, I didn't think they were going to be that strong this year. 
but Morris still can't find room to run. To me, you know, if Mostert didn't get hurt, this would be a moot point because Mostert would have been getting, you know, Morris wasn't really playing when Mostert was in there. They need to move on from Alfred Morris with the, yeah. after the bye. I don't care who running backs are a dime a dozen. I don't want to hear the, oh, who are you going to get thing? You could get somebody off the street these days as a running back and they can come in for five to 10 carries and, and be productive. Bring up one of these guys from the practice squad, give them a shot. Morris is giving you nothing, absolutely nothing. And I thought that when they gave him the ball, and I'm sure, you know, Brita was banged up a couple times and it was on that last drive when they got the field goal. Morris has two carries there deep in Giants territory. And I'm just like, really? I just, they just felt like wasted snaps to me, giving him the ball. I mean, I understand again if Brita had to come out, but I don't know. I'd almost rather see Juszczyk get a carry. It just seemed wasted to me. So I, I really feel like they should move on from Morris, see what some of these other guys can do. Somebody put it out on Twitter. I forget who it was, but I read this on Twitter and I laughed. And they said that Alfred Morris is like, well, out, watching Matt Breida play is like watching a Ferrari. And I'm with you. Like when, you, when, he, when he actually hits the hole, he has another gear that he's able to squeeze through there. And he, he hits the hole really fast and really hard. And that, that sort of thing doesn't happen with every running back, right? Like he's, I, I like to think that he's kind of step above like the average running back. Like I think that if you can continue this, you can consider him to be like one of the better running backs in the league. But that's that's to be seen. He's only in his second year. But Alfred Morris, the, people were like, if Breed is a Ferrari, Alfred Morris is like a Segway, pretty much. Like everything seems to slow down when Alfred Morris is in the game. The the holes open up slower. The offense runs slower. He hits the holes really slowly, and he just doesn't do anything very well. That's that's the problem. And I think that it's just because like he's he's got a lot of tread on the tires and he's had some injury history that that has really slowed him down and he's not the same back that Kyle Shanahan had in Washington had had in Washington and we knew that coming into this but he's not even close to that i think that Kyle Shanahan was probably hoping that even if he could get like 70 to 80% of what Alfred Morris was he knows the scheme he's a fit for the scheme that he would be able to produce more than he has and really it's just i i don't think that there's any point i i, I really think that if you can bring somebody up in the practice squad and maybe develop that person into something you can flip them for a draft pick or something like that to, to a team that is, is really running back needy. Like remember when the 49ers traded for Capri Bibbs last year? Oh dude, nobody's trading for, nobody's trading for Alfred, for Alfred Morris. No, 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 I'm talking about if you can bring up a guy from the, the practice squad or if you can sign, sign somebody off the street or whatever it is, right? Like get rid of like we're past Morris, right? Like the success oh, yeah. of Morris, whatever, whatever it is past Morris. If you could bring somebody up, um, like Jeremy McNichols or somebody like that, like, and develop him. And, and if he can have a good second half of the season, somebody looks at him next year and is desperate in the draft, you flip like a six round pick for him. That's fine. Right. Like the Niners traded for Capri Bibbs last year. They, they, they traded a six for him and he didn't even make the team. So you see that happen all the time. And the Niners do need draft picks. They only have five next year. So really like that should be their point. Like we should stop seeing guys like Garcon and Alfred Morris. And some of these guys, like these long tooth veterans, like, you need to see some of these younger guys and it does, it does them no good to continue trotting Alfred Morris out there. I get why they did it Al. Honestly, they did it because they don't have any bodies. Like really like they were down to Mostert and he was the special teams gunner and he, he himself broke his arm too. So they're literally just doing it because they signed, I forget who it was. They did not bring up Jeff Wilson, but they brought somebody else up um, that they signed up for the game as basically like the third string emergency running back. And he had been in the playbook for like a few days. So I don't think they wanted to throw him in the, in the game at that point. But like you said, now you have 10 days to think about it or whatever that's sorry that the, the bye week to think about it. And it's, it's not a bad time to cut bait with Alfred Morris and bring in somebody else in the playbook. 
you know, it's just, it just doesn't make any sense to keep trotting Morris out there. Absolutely agree. And we'll see what they do with that. I think it was Matthew days, I think was the yes. running back that they brought up. Yeah. It was yep. for that. So, yep. all right. Now moving on, <laughs> I'm sure we both have a lot to say about the defense and I'll start out with the positives. And we said Warner played really well as a rookie. He's had some ups and downs, but he had a nice game last night. He made some big stops. He looks good out there. He looks like a starter. And Richard Sherman, I thought, played a good game. He did have that that pass interference call. And listen, you're playing against Beckham. That's you know he's he's a tough cover, but overall Sherman, Sherman played well, and I thought he was terrific in the run game. And he's been really good this season. And what he's done coming off an Achilles injury, you know, he's missed some time, but overall, what he's done coming off an Achilles injury has been amazing. And and he deserves a lot of credit. And Warner and Sherman to me were were two big bright spots on the defense last night. A defense that continues to play well in, in spurts. They play well here and there. They'll have some streaks where you're like, all right, they're getting it together. And then the mental mistakes just keep happening. Guys throwing up their arms at each other. Guys looking at each other saying, I thought that was your man. What are you doing? Just looking lost. Looking absolutely lost. I cannot fathom. I can't fathom how that's still happening in week 10. Early in the season, all right, you know what? There's some miscommunication. We'll work it out. The same ridiculous mental mistakes week after week after week. And even when they play well, they played pretty well in spurts against the Giants. We saw against Arizona, they played well until the end of the game, and then they give up two scores. Just completely in the secondary, losing their their men. They have no, again, we talked about somebody to wreck the game. They have nobody to close. They have nobody to rush the passer. We, we said week nine against the Raiders, was it a mirage? Yup. <laughs> it was a mirage because the Giants came into this game. They gave up 31 sacks coming into this game in eight games. They were giving four sacks a game and they got to Manning once. Manning had all day last night. And Eli has struggled this year. When there's been pressure on him, he has struggled and the Niners could not put any pressure on him. And Kyle Shanahan said that, oh yeah, we're still trying to figure out our best four for pass rushing. Really, dude? It's week 10. If you're still trying to figure out your best four pass rushers, you don't have any pass rushers. They're just not there. And Dakota Watson, okay, he had a half a sack. He had a good game last week. Dude's got four career sacks. He's not going to come in and be a big-time rusher. We know Marsh isn't going to be that guy despite what the Niners think. Buckner's good on the inside, but he needs help. He needs help. And and they're not putting solid. They refuse to put Solomon Thomas in a position of strength. So we haven't really seen quite what he's been able to do. You know, guys like Ronald Blair, they're okay. They're not setting the world on fire. They, they don't have a pass rush. This defense is, it's so frustrating because they've spent how many first round picks? How many first round picks they spent on this defense? It's there insane are, every year. There's, there are five. There are five right now. There's the three defensive linemen. There's Ruben Foster and there's Ward. It's, it's crazy. And then, okay, then you go first round picks. How many other draft tarts a second round pick? Mm-hmm. Warner's a third round pick. Witherspoon's a third round pick. And, and they, it's the same, it's the same every week, every week. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And we know the elephant in the room is Robert Sala. I know I'm kind of ran here. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll let you react, but the elephant in the room. And again, he can get them to play well at times, but they cannot put together a complete game other than the Raiders game. They haven't put together a complete game all year. And again, the big thing to me is these guys don't, know what each other they don't know where to be they're confused how is that still happening 
that's coaching. Kaleo Witherspoon gets called for that. It was a ticky-tack pass interference call, I thought. But he didn't turn his head. If you don't turn your head, you're going to get called. I know that. That's coaching. Why aren't you coaching that up? Why does it keep happening? It's one thing if in the heat of the game, okay, you know, he didn't turn his head, whatever. Witherspoon keeps doing that. It's coaching. So to me, man, I know they're sticking to staying behind Salah. And Shanahan said a few things today in the press conference when they asked him why Armstead and, and Thomas weren't in the last drive. And he said, you know, yeah, I don't know. I'd like to see them get on the field more. I hope that's a hint at, that there's a little rift between him and Salah because this, I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. Here we go. This is, this is what I was waiting for because I've had long Twitter conversations with people talking about the ineffectiveness of Robert Sala. And if you're one of those people that thinks Robert Sala is doing a good job, and we put all of those people in one room, that room is going to become very, very, it's, it, that room is not going to be very, very full at all because the, the amount of people that think that he's actually doing a good job and that he's smart with what he does is shrinking every single week. And there are so many instances where Robert Sala just does not even understand the concept. Like I, Al, like, look, this, this defense that the Seattle Seahawks run, and I've studied this defense. Like, I, I lived in Seattle, like, for, for a couple of years at the height of the Legion of Boom. Like, we saw them every week on TV. We saw the analysis after the game, post game, all that stuff, right? So, we basically had, and we had, like, the Niners game on one TV, and obviously these, these clowns were playing on the other TV, and we'd have to watch that, right? So, we would see Richard Sherman back then talk about how simple this defense is supposed to be. He's like, they don't disguise a lot. They don't blitz a lot. They're basically relying on guys to understand the scheme and be in the proper position to make a play. Like this is not like a complicated, this is not like a Dom Caper scheme or something that Dick LeBeau would run or even like something that, that, um, that Vic Fangio would run. This is not something that's like hard to understand for a, an NFL player. And they continue, like you said, they continue to have gaps in communication. They don't pass when they play zone. If there's a crossing route, I've said this, I said this weeks ago, and I'm saying it again because they're still doing it. When there's a crossing route and you're playing zone and a guy, like they basically divide the field up into thirds, like vertical, like all the way basically back to the end zone, right? And that's what cover three is. is like you're responsible for your third of the field. So there's a play where Richard Sherman had Odell Beckham in his zone. They're playing cover three and Beckham ran a crossing pattern and he crossed like into somebody else's zone and Sherman was pointing him out. He was pointing at him. He was like, Hey, pick him up, pick him up. Nobody picked him up. And he ended up going for a big game. Like they continuously do this. Like it's like Sherman is the only guy that really knows what, what to do on this, on this defense. And before I go forward, I, I want to talk about Richard Sherman real quick. Richard Sherman, in my opinion, is the best corner in this league right now. And you can quote me on that. And the reason why is because he's, he hasn't allowed a touchdown yet. He's allowed less than 10 catches against, uh, like to his side, he has been absolutely locked down. He's been on a variety of receivers. We saw him on Odell Beckham for a couple plays. He allowed one catch. Um, we've seen him on Devonte Adams at the end of the Green Bay game. Didn't allow a catch uh, until he until Adams got on Maven, and then that's when he wrecked shot. But really, like Richard Sherman has been absolutely what the 49ers have needed. He's been shut shutting down his side of the field, and I think that there is not a better corner in the game. And if you put Sherman on any other team in the league that's that has a better record he'd be getting a hundred times more of the attention that he's getting right now it's because he's on a two and 18 that people think that is a reflection of his individual play and it's not he's he's been really really good and people say that oh well 
Witherspoon is so bad on the other side and, and everybody else is so bad. So they're just staying away from Sherman. Well, you know what? If people didn't think Sherman was doing a good job, they would, they probably would throw, they would throw at him too. If he was struggling, they would throw at him too. No, it's the fact that he's doing his job that they're not throwing at him. This is a brutal league that quarterbacks will target you no matter what. If they see that you're hurt, they see that you're struggling, they will target you. I don't care who you are. I don't care how big the name is, but they're not targeting him because he's still doing his job. So to me, Richard Sherman's still the best cornerback in the league. You quote me on that. Second thing. So the, the Seattle scheme, like I was saying before, is, is not a complicated scheme. The problem is, is that Robert Sala is not calling it properly and the players are not playing it properly. And again, this is, is it chicken or the egg? Is it the players or is it the coaching? I lean towards coaching because you're supposed to let these guys know how, to, how this scheme is supposed to go. The way that this is supposed to go, Al, is that, and we'll, I'll use the names interchangeably. So Sherman's on one side. That side basically is isolated, right? You don't double that side because you rely on Sherman shutting down that side of the field. You have one safety over the top who would play Earl Thomas's position. That's Jimmy Ward. You have one safety in the box who would play Cam Chancellor's position. That right now is, is Antoine Exum, and it would be Jaquaski Tartman Tarts in there. And you double the other side of the field. You automatically double Witherspoon's side of the field. Because Sherman is on, on an island by himself on the right side. They're not doing that. Like on the, on the, the touchdown that Witherspoon allowed where he was kind of, uh, he was a little bit animated after the, after the, the play and Kyle Shanahan actually scolded him about that, rightfully so. You don't show up your teammates. But when he allowed that touchdown, he was expecting safety help over the top. It's like, what, it's Odell Beckham. Like where else is the double going to be? You're not going to double anybody else but Odell Beckham. Play the defense properly. Leave Sherman's side alone. You don't need to double that side. Your job as a free safety is to be the center fielder. And the play that Witherspoon got called for the flag on, Jimmy Ward could have intercepted that ball. Dude, your job is to go there and be a, be a center fielder. That's why you're there. That's why you're, you're, you're the single high safety because you're going to wherever the ball is. You're not going to go like, oh, well, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I think it's going to go here. No, when you see the ball in the air, that's where you go. And you go for the ball. And the fact that he didn't go after that, he kind of pulled up and didn't want to didn't want to take a hit or whatever it was. You can see him pulling up on the replay. I'm like, my God, like these guys, half of it is that they're, they're not coached. Right. And half of it is that they're not playing right. Cause they're not, it's really not the right personnel. And there, there were too many times where you saw a guy running wide open, like towards the end of the game, Malcolm Smith. First of all, I don't even know why Malcolm Smith was on the field at the end of the game. You take him out, you put a dime back in. Like, so it's funny. Cause somebody called me out and was like, Oh, what are you going to do? What would you do differently? Zane? I'm like, you know what? this is what I would do. And I basically gave like a list of like six or seven things that I would do differently. And on that list was take Malcolm Smith out, put a dime back in and have that person shadow Saquon Barkley. That's, that is probably their biggest pass catching threat outside of Odell Beckham. You double back him over the top. You put a dime back on Barkley and just shadow him. Somebody who has equivalent speed to him, but they didn't, they left Malcolm Smith in there and he got torched surprise, surprise. And it's just, it's just these personnel decisions and these groupings that just don't make any sense. And he's done that. Saul has done that the entire season. Like they love to play cover three in, in the red zone. Why, why, why are you playing cover three mm-hmm. in the end zone? Like you, you have such small space to work with already play press, man, make it more difficult for the quarterback to throw the, the windows are already tired in the red zone. And the first touchdown that they allowed to Beckham, there were three guys just staring at the quarterback. Nobody picked up Odell Beckham, top five receiver in this league, and you just let him run by you and, and camp out in the end zone. And it's funny. I saw, I saw a still of, of the replay of that play, and it's Jimmy Ward, Akilah Witherspoon, 
and Quan Williams all staring at Eli Manning and Odell Beckham has his hand up behind all of them. He has his hand up in the end zone and there's nobody within five yards of him. Just absolutely inexcusable. Like the fact that they continuously do this and they do this every single game. And I realized that some, some now, now it's my turn to rant, right? But I realized that huh. some coaches like to, to, to run cover three a lot, but not in that circumstance, like on the play where, um, Saquon Barkley had that long, um, that long reception. It was like, it was like a third, I believe it was like a third and three. And they sent two deep safeties for some reason. Like I was like, I, I was watching the game with my dad. I turned to my dad. I'm like, why did they send those safeties deep? They need three yards. Why, what are you guarding against? They're not going to throw it deep. They're going to get the first down first to extend the drive. They were not in field goal range at that point. So it's just, he doesn't understand these basic things about how to re- execute this scheme. And I said to you a couple of weeks ago, Al, like it's different being the pilot of a plane than it is being a passenger that just rides in the plane. Robert Sala has been the passenger that rode in the plane for the Seattle scheme for years. He has never been the pilot and it shows he doesn't know how to call the scheme. And statistically, they don't, they don't look that bad statistically. I believe in the, they're in the top half of the league defensively statistically, but they played an awful stretch of teams. Like the teams that they played this stretch, you've had, you've had Arizona twice recently. You've had the Raiders, you've had the giants. All these teams are terrible. So obviously your stats will indi- indicate that you're, you're basically like, you know, what, what, what it is to me, Al, is that they're much better on paper than they are in reality, because th- that doesn't take account for all these mis- missed assignments and missed tackles and boneheaded plays that they make that a team 10 weeks in should not be making. And Robert Saul is coaching for his job. Like, I don't see how you can have this guy keep his job after this year. You need to have a strong defensive mind when Kyle Shanahan is a strong offensive mind to offset that. And whether it's like a, like a Wade Phillips or, or like a Gus Bradley, or uh, if Dan Quinn gets fired from Atlanta or Todd Bowles, if he gets fired from, um, from, from the jets, like it's, it has to be one of those types of guys that you bring in, not just a position coach that you want to elevate. And you mentioned that some of the numbers do look good. Like they have 25 sacks, which isn't at all, which is good, but it's not at all indicative of what their pass rush actually is. But one number that's really ugly is the Niners only have five takeaways this season, which is last in the NFL. Man. They're on pace for eight total takeaways, which would be the fewest in franchise history. They had 12 in 2015 and 13 in 1982, which was a nine-game straight shortened season. So they're not taking the ball away. I mean, again, they don't have anybody to wreck that game. They don't have anybody to make a big play to change the momentum. It's just, it, it doesn't happen. And the other big thing with me, you made a ton of great points about Salah, but another thing is the sophomore slumps that we're seeing. Three of the most important pieces, really four of the most important pieces because Adrian Colbert plays such an important position, played such an important position at the free safety in this defense. Witherspoon, Foster, Thomas, Colbert, all these guys entering their second seasons, all starting on this defense, all thought to be very important pieces moving forward. Colbert is injured now, but he did not. He was having a really tough time earlier in the season. Witherspoon's been a mess and I know he was injured earlier in the season. He's probably played better than people are giving him credit for, but there's just been some mental lapses. And you saw his frustration. He threw his arms up on Beckham's, I believe it was his second touchdown, where he thought he was getting safety help and didn't come. And Shanahan was not happy about that after the game. He said that Witherspoon used to man up, and, and Sherman said something about it as well. And yeah, you can't act that way. But you did see his frustration there. He's had a really tough season. Mm-hmm. Really tough season. Foster was at the shoulder. Okay, it's possible, but he wasn't near near. I mean, he was a dominant player last season, and he's he's been a below average player this year. And Solomon Thomas, the big one, right? The number three overall pick 
who just hasn't just absolutely has not been anywhere near what you'd hope he would be at this point in the season. And I looked at his numbers last season. He had 41 tackles in 14 games. He had 10 tackles for loss and 11 QB hits this season. So far in 10 games, he has 17 tackles, three tackles for loss and three QB hits. He's been not as non-existent. He wasn't even on the stat sheet in week 10. Mm-hmm. Absolutely non-existent. And again, my issue with that is he's not on the field at big times. You're two and eight. They were two and seven in that Giants game when, on that last drive. You're not going to the playoffs. I don't want to see what Sheldon Day can do. I don't want to see what what Cassius Marsh can do there. I don't want to see what Ronald Blair. I want Solomon Thomas in there. I want to see what Solomon Thomas can do in that, that situation. Give him an opportunity to sink or swim. If you have him rushing from the inside along with Buckner and he's getting eaten up and he's not getting the job done and that happens for the next six games or whatever it is, okay, all right, you got a problem, but give him the opportunity to do it. So, well, you know, these other guys are showing more. Well, they, they weren't your number three overall pick, and we talked about sometimes draft status. In this situation, it means a lot. This guy was the number three overall pick. It wasn't a guy you spent a second round pick on or a third round pick and you liked him a lot. He was the third overall pick. You need to make it a point for him to succeed. You need to give him every opportunity and they're not doing that. And these sophomore slumps ain't are, are a big part of why I'm down on Salah. Solomon Thomas's case has been really, really interesting because he was never really a guy that did anything really well in college. Like his, his number one highlight, I believe. And I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Like what is Solomon Thomas's signature highlight? Like when you see like a top five pick come out, usually there's some sort of signature play that they make that, that is just like a wow play that makes them pop out on film and, and kind of elevates their, their status. Like with Reggie Bush, it was that run that he had where he had that cutback and then he came back to the middle of the field and Vince Young was a national championship. And, and we see all these guys like Calvin Johnson had all these plays and, and it's just the Solomon Thomas's play was, he fell on a Josh Rosen fumble at the end of a game against UCLA when he was at Stanford and he ran it back for a touchdown, like 50 yards, a fumble that somebody else created. Like he just, he was just on the ground. He fell on it and nobody touched him. So he just, he just basically got up and ran for a touchdown. He doesn't really have like that spectacular game saving play or spectacular play where he was just dominating or any game that he was extra dominant. He really was one of those guys that was supposed to be like a, like a safe pick for John Lynch and a guy who would start for six, seven, eight years and be not be like a superstar, but just be like one of those anchors on your, on your line and, and just be like a nice serviceable starter. And nobody really expected that he would be a superstar, but he really hasn't even become a, a serviceable starter. And both you and I have been saying it just, they're, they're really doing a disservice to him by putting him on the outside and not putting him in the middle, like play him there full time. What's, what do you, what do you have to lose at this point? You need to know what you have in your number three overall pick, because right now you, you literally, you don't know what to do with him. You don't know where to play him. And, and this is kind of the last thing that you haven't really tried. And I know that they're really Earl Mitchell has that spot and everything, but Earl Mitchell is not your future. He isn't. He's 31 years old. He's going to be gone in a few years. Solomon Thomas is your second year top three pick. You need to know what you have in him. And somebody made the the uh, pretty lazy point to me on Twitter and said that, oh, well, uh, when, I, when I responded and said that Solomon Thomas has stated to us on the show, actually, that he has played 85% of his snaps on the inside. And that person was like, oh, well, that's college and college is different. Well, yeah, of course, college is different, but you can't change a guy's position in the NFL 
to, to something that he's not used to playing and think that it's going to actually work. I'll use a baseball analogy. Al, like if a guy plays his entire career in the minors and in college in the minors and high school as, as, a, as a pitcher, and now all of a sudden you want to make him a left fielder and have him hit every day and have him shag balls out there. Like, I mean, he's, it's not going to work out. Right. Like it's because he's not used to playing that position. Right. It's not as simple as like, Oh, well it's, they should be do be able to do it because they're, they're professionals. No man. Like you have certain techniques with every single position. There's certain nuances with every single position out there that you learn and, and shifting a position is a big deal. We don't think it's a big deal because we say these guys get paid millions of dollars, but as an athlete, it is, it is a big deal. You have to learn a whole new set of things and a whole new set of techniques. So for me, like I can't fully say yay or nay on Solomon Thomas unless they try him at his natural position. And I think that hopefully they'll get the, they'll get the point and they'll do that. I don't know if that's Salah's call or Shanahan's call, but I, but hopefully they'll, they'll get the point. Now, regarding the other guys in sophomore slumps, Al, I really think what it is is that they were relying too much on some of these late-round picks and rookies to become really good starting players. And I think that what what we did was, and, and we're guilty of it too in the media, is that we hyped up a lot of these undrafted free agents, late-round picks to be better than they actually were. I think what it was was that it was the end of the season when a lot of teams had had maybe checked out and and maybe the Niners were riding the high off, off of getting Jimmy G and all those wins, and it just elevated everybody's game. But I really think that the lack of having a, a significant veteran contributor, aside from, from Sherman and Buckner on, on the team on, defensively, has really hurt them. Like I, In my opinion, Ali, the best teams are those that have a mix of youth and veteran leadership. And that's because you don't have you don't have to be relying on a guy who hasn't started a full 16 game season to start a full 16 game season. Like Jaquaski Tart, I don't want to sing home out because it's, there are other players who are struggling, but Jaquaski Tart, he's never finished a season. And now all of a sudden he's never on the field. And all of a sudden you're, you're think that, thinking that he'll, his body will change his biology and be less prone to injuries in a year. Like that's, that, that doesn't make sense. Injuries are so, like health is one of those things that you can't teach. You can't acquire that. Like you can acquire speed and agility and those things by training, but you can't, you can't all of a sudden change your biology to be, become a more healthy person, right? It is what it is. If you're injury prone, chances are you will remain injury prone for your career, which is why I'm scared about Ruben Foster because he had the question mark of the shoulder coming in. He had, he had, he missed a bunch of time last year with the shoulder. Now it's the same shoulder that he has surgery on that's injured. And to me, it's like, I, I would just shut him down the rest of the season. I know you've tweeted that as well. And I would just shut him down the rest of the season. Have the surgery now. I would rather you be healthy for 2019 and, and the rest of your career than for you to try to gut out the rest of a lost season. And I think that's partially what has to do with it. And regarding some of these other guys, like, I mean, it's just really like you're, you are as good as the company that you keep, right? Al? Like you are as good as the teammates around you. And when the teammates around you are struggling, it has, it has that effect like that washes over the entire unit. And I think that if one guy is doing really well, it'll bring up the it'll bring up the morale of the, the rest of the unit. Like look at the offense. They have Kittle and Brita. All of a sudden they started performing a lot better. And they had Nick Mullins in there that gave him a spark and they started performing a lot better. The defense hasn't had that this year. They haven't had a player who's either come in off the bench or come in to, uh, for, for somebody who's injured and given the team a spark. And I think that that goes back to our original point that they need to bring in difference makers uh, next offseason. And before before I before I uh, before we move on to the next thing, I just want to touch on one thing, Al. 
a lot of people are, are citing injuries as the reason why the 49ers are struggling on defense. I, that's fine. I get it. Injuries happen. But at the same time, who are these guys replacing? Like Adrian Colbert's a nice player. He's a good player, but he's not, he was not an all pro. He came in for a handful of starts and did pretty well, but he's not a pro bowler. Jaquaski Tar is not a pro bowler. Um, Ruben, Ruben Foster is as talented as he is. He's not a pro bowler. So it's not like they're missing franchise players here. They're missing a bunch. They're missing guys who are kind of spare parts aside from Foster and they're replacing them with spare parts. So I would say that, yeah, injuries would, would be a big deal, but honestly, Al, there's not a huge drop off. There really isn't like these guys that they're replacing aren't franchise guys. So I, I, I think the, the injury excuse it, yeah, like it, you have injuries to starters and everything like that, but it's not like you're losing like a Hall of Fame player. Or you're losing a Pro Bowl player. You're losing just like a guy who started because there's nobody else better than him on the team. So that's just my take. Yeah, on the, the the level of talent on defense, considering all the resources that have been put have been put into it draft wise, is scary. You mm-hmm. should as a 49ers fan, you should be you should be worried about that because guess what? They're probably drafting defense again this year. And it'll so, be defensive, probably defensive line. It'll be a, it'll probably be a pass rusher. In a corner, yep. So we'll see, you know, see what happens. But all right, the, other, the only other thing I want to hit on, hit on with this game was the timeout situation. And people don't know what I'm talking about. The Giants are driving at the end of the game, and it's 23 to 29 ers and there's a minute 35 left in the Niners or, or the Giants are on the 49ers 35 yard line. The 49ers have two timeouts left at this point. Eli throws an incomplete pass. It's second and ten. Giants are lined up from the 35 with a minute 27 left, and the Niners call a timeout. When that happened, I was like, what the hell? What? What? Why did they call it? Why in God's name did they call a timeout? And the reason I'm thinking that is because, one, Giants are pretty much already in field goal range, especially in today's NFL. I mean, kickers kick 50 yarders like it's nothing today. So they're pretty much in field goal range. They just need, what, five to seven more yards for, for kind of a comfortable kick. And the Niners are going to need those timeouts to try and answer. Or... If the Giants get inside the 10-yard line and it gets to the point where the clock's ticking and you're under a minute, the Niners may have to save those timeouts in case they need to go down and score a touchdown, which which happened and, and they needed to do. So they waste this timeout, and I'm just like, what? What, what are you doing? And I knew that was going to come back to bite them, and Shanahan was asked about it in the press conference, and I don't know who asked the question, but they said, that timeout defensively, it looked like your assistant coach was running up the sideline. Was this something you needed to take there, or would you just prefer not to have to burn the time out there? And Shanahan answered, I would definitely prefer not to, but we saw a look that did not look good, and we thought we had a chance to still hold them. So that was a pivotal part of the game to try and stop them before they got there. So I I guess if you're the coach and you see something like, "Uh uh-oh, we have a bad matchup here, we're going to give up a 35-yard touchdown if we don't call a timeout, okay. Okay, but calling that timeout really ended up to come back and bite them because they're driving down the field. They only have the one timeout. They have to take it because they have a penalty and a 10-second runoff. So you have no timeouts left. And then Goodwin catches that ball and he's running all around and you couldn't take a timeout. Maybe you have a couple shots at the end zone. You only have one second left because you had to run down and spike it. It just it ended up screwing everything up there at the end. And it just it drove me absolutely nuts. And again, these just, I guess, argu- you could say arguably mismanaged situation here. But these situations that they just keep getting put in at the end of games where they just do things that are to hurt themselves in questionable calls, whether it's a play call or a defensive scheme or or, or using a timeout, it was, just, it was just super frustrating to me. And I don't know how you felt about the timeout. I don't know if some fans think I'm right or wrong or what the deal was. But when they called it, I was just like, what are you doing? 
I think that uh, with Kyle Shanahan, what he's I'm seeing a change in how he's coaching. I feel like he's kind of learning from his past mistakes. And it was uh, it was one of these games, at least a Green Bay game, where he had all three timeouts and they they it was one of these games, I forget which one it was, where they they left the game with all three timeouts and they they lost at the end. And um they could have taken a defensive timeout just to I think it was that Green Bay game where they could have taken the defensive timeout to actually just calm their guys down and, and put the right personnel in. And I thought that that's why they were doing that. But again, they didn't have Armstead or Solomon Thomas on the field at that time. And Kyle Shannon said that he wanted them on the field. So I don't know why they took that timeout. He said that they had a look that didn't like, but Alec at the same time, like when you have a young defense, sometimes you need that timeout to settle them, but you have to know that it's a fine line to know when to call that and when to, when to just let the clock run. If, if it's one of those things where the, the giants are just like moving the ball down the field and with reckless abandon and nobody's stopping them. And it's, they're just sniping through their, your defense. Yeah, you, you have to call that timeout, take a breather, get the right personnel in, give your defensive coordinator a chance to call the proper coverage and, and look at this. Um, if they're kind of just puttering along and they and they get two yards in a cloud of dust and on the third down they'll convert or their penal- the, the drive extended by penalties, which it, which it was, you probably want to keep that timeout for your own disposal because you're probably going to have to come back and either score to tie or win the game. Um, either that or really Al, when they got close to the goal line, I'm like, okay, well, what are you trying to do here at this point? They're, they're on the 10 yard line. Why don't you just let them score and save yourself 20 seconds. So, uh, really, I just, I just thought that, that, yeah, it was, it was mismanaged, but it wasn't a huge deal because at the end of the day, they still, they still say they had, they had two timeouts left and they were able to save, save them. But you know, it's one of those things where hindsight's twenty twenty. Should they have called it? Probably not. But I'm not really going to get in Kyle Shanahan for for doing that because I understand the the background of it. That the last time they had timeouts on defense, they went home basically against Aaron Rodgers with all their timeouts, and and they didn't use any. And and they probably should have called one to get Maven out of the game that day. So I think that he was probably reacting to that. Um, but one of the things I do want to touch on with Kyle Shanahan was his play calling towards the end of the half and end of the game, and. That basically, to me, shows that he's learned because, Al, you remember me kind of criticizing it earlier this season and saying that, you know what, you can't leave time on the clock. And it was that Green Bay game, actually, that the last time that I talked about this. And and I said that you can't leave time on the clock for Aaron Rodgers to come back and, and win the game. And that's basically what they try to prevent against this time. Like at the end of the half, it was a great drive. They got the ball just over a minute left. And they got some yardage on the, on the Kittle play that got them across midfield. And that's when they went into no huddle and they got down to the end uh, of the half and they kicked the field goal without letting the Giants have any time to respond. Textbook execution. They almost did that at the end of the game. They were going down to the, the basically down to the wire and they bled the clock all the way down under three minutes and they didn't get the first down. And had they had that first down, they could have basically essentially iced the game at that point and made the Giants start using their timeouts. And I think they used one on that drive. So really, like he's kind of learned at the end of halves and games how to how to manage that situation. And I think that with more talent and maybe if he had Jimmy in there, he'd be able to to be a little bit more aggressive. I mean, he's kind of game plan on Nick Mullins is uh, his his deficiencies. So I think that he's learning, and I think that some some of the things that he's learning are reactive, and and some of them won't work out. And the defensive timeout was probably one of them. I, uh, I wanted to touch I'm, I, I'm on a roll here, right? So I wanted to touch on the, the refs as well <laughs> on the last drive. So did you see the, the, the false start penalty on McGlinchey and why that happened? Yeah. Yep. Like the referee had spotted the ball forward. McGlinchey 
had lined up based off of where the ball was spotted. He was looking at his feet, right? He was looking at the defender. The referee moved the ball back. McGlinchey did not move back because he didn't see the ref move the ball back. Uh, Mullins snapped the ball, or, or uh, uh, Richburg snapped the ball to Mullins, and it was it was a false start because because McGlinchey was lined up ahead of the ball because the official moved the ball back and McGlinchey didn't see it. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, it was the, very frustrating. Crew, like Hockley Junior is what I call him. Hockley Junior's officiating crew is terrible. They're one of the worst in the league. All night they were struggling. The call on Sherman was bad. The call on Witherspoon was like, ah, yeah, I can get that. Like they were just struggling all night long to call the correct play. And and it's just one of those things where it literally they they had to burn a timeout because of that or have a 10 second runoff. It did affect the outcome of the game and they could have gotten closer. And it's just really frustrating to me, Al, that the NFL has dumb things like this happening at the end of the games. I didn't have as big of an issue with the the McGlinchey thing was awful, but um, with those two penalties that the Niners got called on defense because Malcolm Smith did grab Barkley. I I, I don't like calls. A lot of penalties being called at the end of games unless they're obvious, Mm -hmm. but that was a hold. He got caught. What what are you going to do? I thought that the Weatherspoon call was ticky tack, but again, we've seen it a million times. If you don't turn your head, they're going to call it. So it was one of those things where I was like, all right, again, if you even just made it kind of sort of look like you were going looking at the ball, you probably don't get the call there. You know, we saw it in the AFC championship game last year. I think it was Jalen Ramsey uh, against the Patriots. And he got called for something that had no business getting called for because he didn't turn his head. You got to turn your head. So I didn't have as big of an issue with with those two calls. I thought, you know, kind of was what it was. Um, You know, the Niners got a call on the drive on the last drive when they called the roughing the passer when Mullins kind of got, shoved into the ground a little bit there. So uh, the officials, I never think officials do a good job and there's a, there's an officiating issue in the NFL. But yeah, the McGlinchey thing was definitely frustrating, but I didn't have as big of an issue with the calls that were made against the Niners on that last drive. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I mean, and again, the rest didn't lose in the game, but it's just, it's just interesting to me that there's still like, these are fundamental things that if it was like a playoff game or something like that, it's just, it's just unacceptable. Now, Al, game balls. I'm going to say I'll go first because um, I'm not going to be a gentleman. I'll be a jerk like that. And uh, um, I'll say that Richard Sherman gets my game ball. Like he was making, he was in run support. He allowed the, the one catch to Beckham on the sideline. Um, and then the other one that was, was a crossing pattern that was not actually his fault. But Richard Sherman has been the best 49ers defensive player. I would say he's arguably outside of George Kittle been the best 49ers player. He's the best corner in the league. He's, he's, not 100%. You can tell that he's still a little bit slow, but he's getting by with technique and veteran savvy, and he's been everything the 49ers could, could ever have wanted. And yeah, Richard Sherman gets my game ball. I got to go Matt Breed all day. 17 carries, 101 yards, and a touchdown rushing, three catches, 31 yards, and a touchdown receiving. He was, in a lot of ways, the centerpiece of that offense, and the sky is the limit with him moving forward. It was great to see he gets my game ball. Yeah, and usually we like to do the preview for the next week, but the Niners have a bye next week. And they'll probably somehow fail to beat the bye. Like in the last five seconds, the bye will like kick a game winning field goal. (laughs) So anyways, I'll take the Niners to beat the bye next week. You can guarantee that that's one game. The Niners will not lose one week. The Niners will not lose. And they'll still find a way. They're still going to find a way to lose it. (laughs) But before we get out of here, I want to, I want to touch on the, the, the Le'Veon Bell thing real quick. And he's so for those of you who don't know, he's the deadline has passed for him to report to steal the Steelers facility and Le'Veon Bell is now sitting out the rest of the 2018 season, which means that he will have forfeited his entire salary for this year. And on top of that, it, it rolls over for the Steelers. So it counts against their cap next year. So 
it's possible that Le'Veon Bell may not be on their team and he will still be counting against their cap having not even played 2018. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, there's a couple ways to look at it. You could say that he's smart for holding out to get a bigger contract and not risking his body. What would he have made? 15 million this year if he yeah, played? Franchise, yeah, yeah, I don't. I don't feel bad for people who make 15 million dollars in a year. I'll mm-hmm. play. I'll, you know what? I'll go play football for 15 million dollars and I'll blow my knee out, and then I'm set for life. So I'm pretty good with that. I would do that. So don't really. What's my motto? I don't feel bad for people who make considerably more money than I do. So yeah, I don't really care what he, if, if he would have played and gotten hurt he still would have made a ton of money but i get what he's doing um i don't think he's gonna have the market he thinks he's gonna have when he's a free agent because what will it be he'll be 27 mm-hmm. 28 i don't know how old he is but he's in his late 20s running backs don't get a ton of money he may get a big upfront deal where he makes a lot of money up front but is he going to get more than 15 million guaranteed i don't know maybe i don't know we'll see what the market is i i certainly wouldn't pay a running back like that we saw what happened with Jarek mckinnon right Mm-hmm. He got a big, it was a front loaded deal, but he got a big deal and he blows his knee out and running backs get hurt. And especially running back in the late, your late twenties, unless you're Frank Gore, usually you start to decline in your late twenties. So I want to pay him. I think it could end up backfiring on him. But again, you know, I don't feel bad if he would have played this year and got hurt, made $15 million. I'm not gonna make $15 million in my life. So whatever, man. Yeah, Earl Thomas kind of is is the poster child for that whole sitting, the reason why he sat out because Earl Thomas, as we know, held out of Seahawks training camp. He came and reported to the team, ended up getting hurt, fracturing his leg and being out for the season. And uh, he's probably done with the Seahawks, but really like I'm with you, Al, like you, you are, have a chance to make $15 million. And I understand that you want a long-term contract because of all the security and everything. But at the same time, there's guys out there who are busting their butts without you. And they're, they're showing up to work. And a lot of the guys, those guys don't, they're not signed beyond this season. And they, they make a fraction of what you make. So you really have to come down to like common sense. Like, come on, man. Like it sends the wrong message to other teams, sends the wrong message to other locker rooms. Like who's going to want to play with this guy? I mean, some team's going to get desperate and sign him, but who's going to want to play with him? And I, I really, I, I'm with you. I don't think the market's going to be big for him next year. Running backs, like you said earlier in the show, dime a dozen. The Niners, uh, they were like, oh, the Niners are top five for odds of getting him. The Niners would be foolish to sign him at this point, especially with the emergence of Matt Breda. And the, all that money tied up in Jarek McKinnon, he's not coming here. So no, there's that, no way. There's no way he's coming here. So I just thought it was kind of funny. I wanted to see what you thought about it, and I, I think that I, I share your sentiments on that. All right, saying anything else? Well, man, I mean, we'll see. We'll see. We're gonna we're gonna put together a, a show on the bye week next week, and and we'll have probably a lot to talk about with uh, with the rest of the league. And um, well, I mean, we can talk about the Warriors, right? They have a bunch of drama. Apparently, Draymond Green and Kevin Durant are not getting along. I think Kevin Durant's gone after this, this season. I, I really, um, he's going to probably want to go to New York or someplace like that. But it's just funny. Isn't it funny when you see locker rooms fight like that? It's like, you're going for a three-peat, man. Who cares? Just get along and win the championship. Yeah, maybe they're bored. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you know, what it is, yeah. Trying to spice up the regular season until they run through the playoffs again and win the title again. Yeah, it's as an athlete, like as a former athlete, like I've seen locker rooms, like all sorts of locker rooms, and like they never get along. Like you always have some people that that are causing some sort of ruckus. And even when you win, like they're always like people that are that are personality conflicts and aren't happy, but it's just when you're on the court or on the field or whatever it is, you don't really care about that stuff and you just try to go for a win. But seeing some of the the reactions for the Warrior players, like Clay Thompson, who's like the most chill guy in the world, was even shaking his head and threw his hands up. And he's like, I can't believe, you know, we didn't get that shot off. And um, they suspended Draymond Green for the game. So this is what Tuesday night we're recording this. Draymond Green got suspended for the game tonight. So really, there's a bunch of issues going on. So be something to watch. But that's all I have, man. 
it's like Zane and I off air. We're throwing staplers at each other. We're just <laughs> throwing haymakers at each other. And then, then as soon as, as soon as it's game time, you know, we just, we turn it on. So, yep. Yep. All right, man. Till next week. Thanks everybody for tuning in again. This is Al Sacco for Zane Nackby. We'll talk to you soon. See you.